the only thing worse than a root canal is looking for a job on the internet. Hello everybody, this is Anthony Moore with Career Daily. I am here to put the human back in human resources. Let me be your competitive advantage on the job market. It is dog eat dog out there. Our research companies, new industries, I'll dig around, I'll figure out who some of the hiring leaders are, and I'll post all this information on our exclusive Facebook networking group. You'll also hear amazing interviews from professionals that I'm interviewing all across the country. Some are inspiring. Some are very informative. Some duds. I'll leave the duds out. Stay tuned for today's episode. Well, today I am joined by a very special guest. She had a viral post on LinkedIn. It really caught my attention. She beat the odds. It was very inspiring, and we're not going to get political today, but definitely from a cultural, social viewpoint, what she has done is quite amazing. She was born to a teenage parent, and at 16, she left home, became emancipated at 17, and some very amazing things happened to her when she joined the National Guard. Please welcome Brittany Conley. Hey, Tony. It's nice to be here. Yeah, that's, you know, so many stories come across the feed in LinkedIn, but this one really just struck home with so many people. Um, what what age were you when you realized that there was a, a problem at home? Oh, boy. I mean, it's like almost a, a loaded question just because I feel like my home life, and I, I, I think a lot of people can probably attest to this who may have a, a similar background. Um, I was born to obviously a teenage parent, and she had her first child, which is my older sister, age 15, and then had me when she was 18, and then my brother when she was 19, and my little sister at 23. Um, my, my brother and I are actually the only ones that share the same father. And it probably started, you know, as a toddler, honestly, I, my parents, they were divorced at when I was about three and I lived with my mom for a few years. And just in that home alone, we suffered, you know, a different amounts of, um, you know, physical and emotional abuse from at the time our stepfather. And then I moved in with my dad at age seven and his girlfriend at the time who became my stepmom and his girlfriend was 18 when I met her when I was five. So I went from one teenage parent to another teenage parent. And then my father um, has suffered from bipolar disorder my whole life. So, and anybody who has lived with somebody with mental illness, it's every day is not a bad day by any means. Um, I would like to think that, you know, most of my childhood was, has a lot of good memories, but when you have those bad days, they're glaringly bad and they will put an immense shadow over the family for months. And I believe that really the pinnacle or like the peak issue happened when me and my brother became preteens, uh, you just become more aware of your surroundings and your parents' interactions with each other. And really, we started to understand and realize what my dad was suffering through. And it becomes more difficult as a teenager handling those glaringly bad days 
because you end up losing a lot of respect for your parents because it's hard to rationalize and under, you know, really understand what they're going through when they're trying to raise you at the same time, when you can turn back to them and be like, hey, but you're doing A, B, and C. Uh, I think the biggest thing that really struck me was when I was 15 and my parents were having, they were having a pretty bad fight and I was doing my best to ignore it. And next thing I knew was a box fan went through the uh, screen door next to me and I was sitting on, I was sitting on the couch reading a book and I happened to look up and my, my dad and my stepmom were just having a whisper argument. And I, you know, I stood up and walked over there to see what they were, what they were doing, what was going on, who threw the fan, like what's, what's happening. And, and my father was holding a butcher knife and, you know, he kept saying he doesn't want to do this. And I had no idea what was going on. And I just remember grabbing my stepmom from her back of her arm and told her, Hey, let's go. Cause I didn't know if he was threatening her or threatening himself or what was going on. And she told me, no, go to your room. And I, that I'm pretty sure was the first time I ever told my parents, no, like this isn't happening. And I grabbed her and, you know, kind of led her outside and grabbed the car keys to kind of get us into a safe place. And as I walked by the kitchen window, I just kept hearing my dad, I don't want to do this. I don't want to die. So at that point, I knew that my dad was being suicidal and my, my stepmom, bless her heart, was just in a panic and she was trying to help him. And I had to step up and be the adult in the situation. And I had to tell her to go to the neighbors. Um, and I went to one of the neighbors. We both separately. I was like, hey, give her instructions that we need to call 911 because I didn't know if my dad was, you know, going to attempt or what was happening, what was going through his mind at that time. And, uh, I was across the street at my neighbor's and I was, you know, we called 911. I was in tears, just crying, trying to talk to uh, my friend's parents because they live right across the street from us. And I just will never forget when the police came, they brought the SWAT team and my dad had cut the power to the house and they had, you know, we're talking over the megaphone to him to come out and everything. And then the next thing I knew, my dad walked out. Sorry, it makes me emotional. <laughs> Well, listen, this is a very touching, very emotional story because so many of us have had not idealistic, you know, growing up right. and, you know, for you to have to go through that with, you know, with your brother, um, it's very, very difficult. And, right. you know, many, you know, many kids today, when they go through something like that, child services gets involved. Mm hmm. And, you know, the kids get taken, they get put in foster care and the parents get help and the kids can come back. It doesn't sound like that happened here. It sounds like the the schools or for whatever reason, you didn't, you know, get that kind of support. It was really just between you and in your own family. Right. Yeah. And the whole situation is just like, you know, the, the police came and I don't want to, obviously this is not political by any means, but this was back in, oh shoot, 2000. 2004 and I think a lot of things have changed even in the last you know 20 years and stuff about how you deal with um, people having a mental health crisis and this you know this was in this was in Oregon so I know that they have a whole system out there where they they call this it's called white bird crisis and they will dispatch them to people who are having um, situations like this but you know they're going to call the police anytime there may be a weapon involved and 
you know, at 15, seeing my dad walk out with, you know, lasers on his head and stuff and then him on his knees and everything is just like, you know, am I, did I, you know, is someone going to kill my dad? But, you know, they, he, they end up talking to him and he agreed to go to um, the psychiatric hospital. So they um, put him in the ambulance and he left for two weeks. And I think at that point, it came to the realization that, you know, my, my home wasn't healthy and uh, my son, I call her my mom now, you know, at, at 30, almost 32 years old, but she, uh, you know, she was so young. I think, you know, when I was 15, she was like, what, 28 at the time. And so she's trying to take care of my father um, through what he was going through and two teenagers at the same time who were just trying to figure out what was going on with their dad. And it just, you know, that situation, it just, it put a cloud and I was so angry with my family, um, you know, just because I'm just like, you guys aren't getting the help that you need. And it's, you know, it's putting a lot of stress on my brother and I. So the next year, you know, just being 16 and just thinking that, you know, I knew what I needed to do, I left. And it was honestly a very hard year, uh, just trying to figure things out for myself, no longer having that support from my parents. But where did you go? Did you get help from anyone, family? What, what uh, was that situation? I, I couch surfed, honestly. So my junior year, I was all over the place. I ended up uh, towards the end of my junior year because I was pretty much truant my second semester and didn't go to school at all. I left Oregon and I went to Washington State to stay with my birth mom, um, which was even worse. <laughs> so my birth mom. Uh, Out of the. Uh, out of the fire, uh, the frying pan into the fire again. Right, right, and you know she would she she's never had been there for me, um, and so this was her chance to try to show support. And I went up to Washington State, and I was only there for a month. I lost about ten pounds because there was no food in the house. I found out that she was doing meth, all this stuff, and I finally, and my little sister was with her, and I told her that if she didn't buy me a bus ticket home. Um, that I was going to call the police on her. So, and I felt horrible because my little sister's five years younger than me. and I can't, you know, I couldn't take her with me. And at the time I was, you know, so just thinking about myself that I didn't do what was right before her. I should have called, you know, CPS. No, you, you can't blame yourself. Yeah, as you know, you can't blame yourself. Right, for that. right. You but know, you, you know, you're in a, uh, a survival mode at that oh, point. Oh, yeah. So I came back. Um, at first, my parents were just like, oh, just stay in Washington, stay with your mom, you know. Um, but I was able to convince my mom to buy me the bus ticket. And I ended up being homeless for a few weeks back in Oregon until it, I bounced around and actually ended up coming back to my my dad and my stepmom's house for that summer. And then I left again because they were finally going to be going through a divorce, um, among other things. And so I ended up staying with a friend and her family for a good majority of my senior year. But it came to the point with my parents who didn't want to support me. They didn't obviously pay for anything. I was on food stamps at 17 years old and I'm um, just trying to, you know, make sure that I was doing what I can at my friend's house. And it came to a point where I was just like, I have to get emancipated because they were still trying to control what I could do at school and where to go. And we're trying to like make these rules when I didn't live with them. So I got emancipated from them because I needed to have that autonomy. Yeah, it, it, explain that process of being emancipated. So being emancipated, it's it's really a simple court process. I was really shocked 
at how easy it was to get emancipated. So in Oregon, it's like 50 bucks. You go, you fill out the paperwork and you just, you go in front of the judge and you plead your case. And my parents came and were trying to say how I shouldn't be emancipated. And it came to the point was like, look, I don't live with them. They don't provide me any money whatsoever. Um, my dad, because of his mental health issues, I knew he was getting social security money for me. I wasn't seeing a dime of that. And I was like, I can't go and get my own apartment because I'm not 18. Like I can't do all of these things and sign for myself what I need to do to have that autonomy um, because they want to have some kind of control of what I'm doing when I'm not there. So, I mean, the, you know, they pled their case and were trying to say I was irresponsible and stuff, but he's, you know, I remember the judge asking him, well, are you going to let her live at home? And they said, no. And like, well, then I'm going to grant this emancipation. So um, it was really simple and I was just kind of shocked, but I think it was just because I hadn't been at home for a year and they weren't providing anything. So, um, and you know, they're, they're honest, you know, they were honest about it and how they felt about it. But at the same time, I'm like, they were causing me to be disadvantaged by their choices if I remained under their, technically their guardianship. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was honestly great for me because then I was able to go get my driver's license. I was able to go get signed for a lease and have an apartment and stuff and not couch surf and trying to like beg my parents, friends to let me stay with them and everything because you know, who wants an extra, you know, mouth to feed. Um, even if they, you know, feel like they're helping me, I, I was so independent and want to do things on my own. I really needed at that time to have someone to support me. And that was me, myself and I, <laughs> you know, I couldn't keep relying on all the others, these others, adults who really didn't have any stake in my well-being as it felt at the time. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I did what I needed to do for myself. And I think that a lot of the drive was because I was so angry. I was so angry at my situation and my parents and all of the things that had been, you know, going on for the last several years um, with, you know, my parents and their domestic issues and my dad's mental illness and with my, you know, birth mom's situation. So it was, I, I finally was able to have that independence for myself. And there's just, there's just something about being able to sign something with your own name and not being like, oh, now you have to sign that parent guardian signature and I go, great, I'm never going to get that, you know? So that's kind of how that chapter of my story happens and becoming separated from that. And that was also obviously well before I joined, you know, the National Guard and the military because even I graduate, I, I don't know, I graduated high school by the skin of my teeth. Uh, barely, it was, it was rough because when you're truant for half a year, you're not, you know, you're not going to really have the credits that you need to graduate on time. And I did it. And I wanted to prove to my parents and to everybody else who told me that leaving was the wrong decision and getting emancipated is the wrong decision that I didn't need their support to get through life, that I could do this on my own, with my own willpower, my own determination, despite all the stuff that I had lived through as a child and a teenager, that it just, I don't know, I just had that drive, I've always had that drive to do, just to do better than what my parents did, honestly. Well, I just find it interesting because I do know and I have read and I've seen cases where people are given a very bad lot in life and they just, team, they, they have accepted it. You know, or they look to blame someone else, but 
you have just done the opposite. Yeah, and it's 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 almost hard to explain it. I something is just boils down to personality, but my brother did the same thing. My brother the very next year left. He uh he went and stayed with a friend and he actually fought my parents for child support so that he could have some funds. And he, he was, fought them for child support that yeah. they would pay him. Yeah. So because my brother, yeah, he did. So since my oh, dad God. got social security funds for me and my brother, because of his disability, because of his mental illness, my brother fought for it and he got it. So, and I think it was, it was a quite a, it was a couple hundred dollars. So that, I mean, that's significant to a 16 year old. Um, but yeah, oh, sure. He, I mean, especially back then, I mean, this oh, you know, yeah. money, you know, money had a little more power. And, you know, my brother was just like me in the aspect of like, he was just as mad. He just, I think, learned from my mistakes when I left. So he set himself up a little bit better. Uh, but when he left and was like, Hey, I'm going to get this money from them. And he graduated high school with like a 3.8 GPA. Um, and he was, you know, played football and wrestling and stuff. So he did really well for him, but he also joined the military, um, his senior year in high school, he committed to the Marines. So, you know, both of us separately are very successful in our individual careers and, you know, both experienced this. Um, he's only 14 months younger than me. So, you know, we're, we were very close in age and very close growing up. And I think he was just like, you know, kind of wanted to see how it worked out for me first before he made the same leap to leave as well. And, you know, I'm super proud of him for, you know, his decisions, what he's done and where he's at in life as well, um, despite everything. So, and I want to call it luck, but it's not. I think it's just we're both so determined to not be in the same situation that our parents were uh, in. And that includes with, you know, our individual spouses and our families as well, you know, and trying to make those decisions best for ourselves. But did you see any people when you were growing up that maybe had a better situation, you know, from school or friends? You maybe you you just saw an example somewhere. I'm trying to figure out, you know, why is it that that you had this inner determination I mean, yes, it could have just come directly from your own thinking, you know, that you were going to do this. But other times people are around other parents or families and they see something, you know, it becomes an image in their mind that they, that they want. Oddly I mean, enough, you did, you, you know, you couch surfed. I mean, you were definitely around other people. Oddly enough, it would have been my own parents, uh, you know, and it's, you know, that's why I said that. You can't, I can't chalk up my whole childhood to be this horrible, like, you know, pit that everything was bad all the time. And, and, you know, my parents, like, they really established the fact that education is really important to, you know, get through life and, you know, knowledge is power. And the more that you know, the more you can make these, you know, valuable decisions for yourself. And I, I think that they ended up kind of um, putting their foot in their mouth by saying that because a lot of stuff that we did, me and my brother, kind of to get out of the family home was, you know, we did our research and made sure that if we stayed with friends that they weren't, you know, our friends' parents weren't going to get charged with like, you know, uh, harboring a runaway and stuff like that, you know, depending on the situation. Um, but my dad, despite everything, so a little bit about my dad's story, and I'm not going to say his name on here because I really don't want to anybody look him up. Cause I, I have a very, a really special bond with my father 
Um, and I'm really, your birth father, my, my real father. Right. So, because like, I mean, you know, he really didn't get a, I don't want to say a grip or a handle when you talk about mental illness, but I don't think he really realized himself until his late forties. Um, when I was in Afghanistan. So, you know, in 2013, I remember coming back and he had lost a lot of weight and he was just doing a lot better and he was seeing a counselor all, all the time. And I'll never forget the thing that he said to me. He just, he's never really talked about his mental illness. And he's just like, he's like, I just came to a point, you know, because every day of the last like 20 years, he would wake up wanting to die, you know, and that he was just trying to always come to grips with his mental state and why he feels that way all the time. And that just, you know, depression, but with, you know, with bipolar disorder, it's really a roller coaster. They have super high highs and really low lows. Um, but he really has significant lows. And it, I was just so proud of him because uh, when he met my mom, he met my mom when he was 19, uh, my real mom. And he, it was, he had joined the Navy and he'd known her for two weeks and he knew he was going to Italy and to be stationed in Italy and asked her to marry him so she could, he could take her with her because, you know, he, she had a little girl, which was my older sister. And he really wanted to be able to take care of her. But once he was displaced from, you know, his hometown in, you know, a foreign country, essentially, that's when his mental health really took a big dive and he ended up having to be discharged from the Navy because of it. And then his mom and my, I, his mom, my mom and him, excuse me, uh, had separated because of his mental illness. And he kind of left for a few years and I would see him every once in a while. And I just always remember when I was a toddler, like how much I missed my dad and how I just really wanted to get it out of the situation that I was in with my mom. And I would beg my mom to go with my dad like every week. And I, I must've been like three and a half or four years old. And I remember this clearly because he called and he wanted to talk to me. And I just remember going, daddy, daddy, will you please come home? Please come home. I want to live with you. Um, Cause he was like doing this cross country trip because of his mental health. Like he just needed to, to I guess, find himself. Um, and I think he realized at that point that he really needed to be there for me and my brother because we were being abused um, by my stepdad at the time. Um, and you know, he came back and saw us like every weekend and he just, I just remember him working so hard to try with the courts and stuff like that to get me and my brother, um, and like with my mom and trying to like work that out with her. Uh, so when I, when I went to live with him, I just remember us moving, uh, to Eugene, Oregon. So he'd go to school. So like my biggest memory of elementary school was him going to get go to college like he just went to college and he did that you know for four years and was just trying really hard to get his education he became like nearly fluent in mandarin we'd always go over to his um there was this wo woman who was from i think it was taiwan that we would go over and visit and have dinner with her as a family and stuff and they would speak mandarin and all that i just remember being so impressed by him as a little girl how I wanted to be just like that, to be, I guess, I don't know how to explain it, to be, um, hmm. But you know, I think you just saw, I think you just saw all the sides of him. Right. And I think like a lot of people, they have 
challenges that sometimes seem bigger than them that they can't quite solve. And unfortunately for you, as a, as a very young person, it just kind of drove you out of the house, but there were, sounds like some great memories and some great, you know, life, you know, practical skills that he gave you. Yeah. So it's just, is I can just only imagine that complicated relationship now that you have, because on the one hand, had you not gone through that, you wouldn't be where you are now. So it's always like, well, would you trade your past, you know, to be different, but you know, it, it made you into who you are. Right. So you have to love him. It's like, you have to love him for that because it's, you know, it forged this, you know, within you. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And he's just, you know, I always tell everybody he's the smartest man I know, but he just, he's this constant battle within himself uh, that it's really hard to, you know, relate with somebody like that in this, in the same aspect. It's hard to have a relationship with somebody who is having, you know, those difficulties. And I think that all of us leaving, you know, eventually him and my stepmom got divorced and she moved away and me and my brother left and he was finally like alone and he wasn't responsible for anybody. Was he finally like, he was actually able to work on who he was as a person and like develop. Because I think when you're that young and still trying to figure out how to handle your own mental health, how are you supposed to like cultivate these young, you know, little people into adults themselves when you can't even get a grip on yourself as well. So like, I'm really proud of who he is now and you know what he's gone through and like, he's just, he's in a really stable place, but it was, it was one of, it was so difficult and just, it truly does make me so emotional thinking. Well, we're back. We just had a major uh, tech issue. Brittany, your your laptop just decided to restart. Yeah, you know, that's what I get from not having a MacBook. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. Well, why don't we uh, try to segue? I don't know exactly where we left off. Um, I don't know how familiar people are with the National Guard. Obviously, it's the reserve system for the Army and the Air Force. So tell us a little bit about how you got involved in, because uh, that was a big part of your story on, on LinkedIn, was giving them so much gratitude. Absolutely. So when I was, oh gosh, it was right before my 19th birthday, I came to a point, um, I was trying to go to school and at the time, you know, I was emancipated. So I, you know, filled out my financial aid packet and they didn't have an option to say that you were emancipated. So if you're obviously separated from, you know, any type of guardian, legal guardianship, then you don't, you're considered independent to the federal system, and you should be able to get the max amount of federal aid to go to college. Well, they didn't have that option. I think they had like ward of state, which I wasn't a ward of the state. Uh, So they wanted me to get my parents' income. And at the time, my stepmom, my parents were still married, and she had recently got an awesome promotion at her job and was making a buttload of money. And so when I claimed her income, I still couldn't get any money. So it was, it, I was in this, you know, situation where I really wanted to go to school, but I couldn't afford it. And I had recently lost my job. I was working for a temp agency and I got, you know, viral strep throat and they laid me off because I had, you know, with, with a doctor's note was out for two weeks because of it. But, you know, temp agencies, they don't have the same, you know, 
rules and regulations that they have to follow for the workforce. So they were able just to let me go. And so I'd lost my job. I remember my new, new to me used car was getting repossessed. And I think I was in like some credit card debt because I was trying to survive at just 18 years old. And it just was like, well, heck, how am I, how am I going to like move on with my life? If, you know, I'm in all of this debt, I can't go to school. And I actually went to, I called my friend. So I called this, her name's Sharia. I played rugby with her in high school and she had recently come back from some type of military training and I didn't know what it was. And I called her up cause I didn't have a car and I was like, Hey, can you take me to a Navy reserve recruiting station? Cause obviously I have family that had served in the Navy and that was my first, you know, thing to go to. And they actually ended up turning me away. Um, because they didn't have any health corpsmen. So she was like, hey, let me take you to my recruiter. And so she took me to her National Guard recruiter. I had absolutely zero idea what the National Guard was at that time. And I just remember walking into his office and she introduced us and I I told him my situation and what I wanted to do. I was like, I think I'd really like to be like a medic of some sort. Can you do that for me? And he had asked me, hey, you know what? what'd you get on your practice test when you were at the Navy Reserves? I was like, I got like a 70 something. He's like, yeah, we got a medic for you. And having no idea what any of this means, he's like, well, you won't get a bonus. And I was like, that's fine. What else is the guard going to offer me? And he told me all about the education benefits that they would help pay for my school before I even went to basic at the time they did that. And that, you know, when I get done with training, I can stay home. And I was like, wait, hold up. So you're going to give me the job that I want. You're going to pay for my college and you're going to allow me to stay in my hometown when I come back from training. I don't have to go anywhere. He's like, yeah, no, that's not the point of the guard. The guard is here for the state of Oregon. I was just like, well, sign me up. <laughs> like, you don't have to sell me on anything else. Where do I put my signature? And literally within three days, I was at, at the military entrance processing station having no idea what I was really getting myself into. And, you know, I, I got in and a couple months later, I went off to training And I came back and, you know, unfortunately, when I came back, I didn't have a job just like before I left. I didn't have a job and I was floundering a little bit and kind of, you know, a little depressed because, you know, I was gone for eight months. I came back. I didn't really have a support system when I came back and I called up my friend Shreya, who helped me get into the National Guard. I was like, I don't know what to do. I haven't met my unit yet. I don't have a job. Like I'm really feeling lonely right now. And she just started making phone calls. And next thing I knew I was working at the Oregon military department as a federal technician full time at the age of 20, making like 36,000 a year, which was amazing at that age. Um, And I think one of the things that really, I realized that made me super grateful of my position was I had gone to annual training and came back and my boyfriend at the time was like, I don't understand how you have all the things that you have right now. Cause I had a really nice Jeep Wrangler, you know, I had my own apartment. like I could buy anything that I wanted to. I had a great full-time job. Um, I could go to school if I wanted to, because I had education benefits. And I was just like, I look, I remember looking on square in the face. I was like, I'm in the national guard. I would not have any of this if I was not in the National Guard. They helped me get a job, a full-time job, that I had to be, you know, wearing the uniform to have that position as a federal technician. 
I was like, if I didn't have this job or this uniform, I wouldn't have the money that I have. If I didn't have the money I have, then I wouldn't have my car and all the stuff that I can do for fun in my own apartment and all these things. And I, I think that's really kind of like what started my, my gratefulness of my position, because no matter what happens, like I could just ask my leaders, Hey, I really need help with this. Or what would your suggestion be? Do we have programs for this? And I was able to go through my whole career like that. And one of the, one of the more devastating things that happened to me in my career was I ended up getting injured. I hurt my knee and my organ unit was deploying to Afghanistan and I got pulled off the deployment and I'll never forget being in my commander's office with my first sergeant and one of the other officers in my unit. And I just started crying because I just couldn't believe that I couldn't go with them because these are like, they were my people, right? And they were about to go to a combat zone and I couldn't be there with them. And I was so devastated over it. And I actually considered getting out at that point because I felt like as a, a failure as a soldier, because you train, like that's what you do in the National Guard. You're constantly training and getting prepared to be deployed, either in state or overseas. And I was a journalist. So, you know, I was super excited to go over overseas and, you know, tell the soldier story and tell the Afghan story. And I was so prepared for it. And I uh, ended up, I, you know, they left and I was still there. And I'll never forget my platoon sergeant at the time. It was, uh, you know, Sergeant First Class April Davis. She, like, really saved, saved my mindset and my, and my career at the point. And she was just like, you're so valuable to this organization. As Because I was an E5 time, like, as a sergeant, you have so much to give. I really want you to stay. And she started like doing everything she could, like try to help me fill out an active guard reserve packet to be you know, active duty for the National Guard, was making sure that I was on orders or if I needed help with anything. And I remember sitting in uh, the office that I was on orders with, I was like a assistant supply sergeant at the time for an infantry battalion. And uh, I started going online because I heard of this thing called tour of duty. And Tour of Duty is this MOBCOP. It's an army website where they list all the vacant positions around the world where they need people who are reserves or National Guard um, to be in these positions to help with the strength, essentially. And I ended up finding out that the South Dakota National Guard was deploying to Afghanistan to replace my organ unit. And I immediately applied and I started calling my platoon sergeant and telling her that I was going to do this and I need her support at state and stuff to get my packet through. And I started making phone calls to the South Dakota National Guard and was like, hey, I really want to go on this. Will you guys please take me? Like, I really want to be able to give my unit high fives on the way out. And they, they picked me up and I, who knew that you could do that? Like, I didn't know you could go with another state <laughs> to Afghanistan. And I was able to like, but finally, like, really fulfill that duty that I felt obliged to as an E5 sergeant um, and actually deploy and, and do what I, you know, really what you enlist for is to be there in support of other soldiers and for the organization as a whole. And, like, constantly, like, anytime, you know, stuff happened like this where you kind of feel like you're floundering or you feel like 
oh man, life is really giving you a high five in the face, essentially. You know, the National Guard was always there, like, yeah, we're gonna help you with this, we're gonna get you forward, we really want you here, we really you, we really need your expertise and your leadership skills. And I constantly had these leaders, like, just, like, I wanna say pretty much like holding my hand, like, hey, I got you. Like, I've always got your six, we're always gonna get you to where you need to be. And really kind of set me up for success. And so I was able to deploy to Afghanistan. It was honestly one of the best experiences of my career. And, you know, most people, I don't know, would say that about a combat deployment, but it was just so amazing to be able to go over there and see how the army operates and be able to talk to so many soldiers from different backgrounds and be able to tell their story and how we were, you know, in an advise and assist role in Afghanistan and, you know, talk with the Afghans from different organizations over there and be able to bring that experience with that culture back and implement, you know, what I learned to my soldiers and also my career as a recruiter. It's something that I can turn around to young adults who are thinking about joining the military service and be like, yeah, this is, this is what I experienced and this is how the National Guard helped me. And I want to be able to help you too. I want, you know, despite whatever your background is, um, you know, you don't have to come from a background like mine to join the military by any means, but it does help when people say, oh, okay, so she did it so I can do it too. And I always kind of, I always think about Sergeant Davis and how she always just like really stood up for me and made sure that I was pushed in the right direction so I didn't leave the National Guard. And I always want to be that leader for everybody else. Like, hey, you can be just as successful. It's, you know, it's really about your mindset and your attitude. And I tell that to any recruit or applicant or my soldiers is that, hey, your attitude really makes your experience. You have a bad attitude about things and you're going to think about things negatively and you're going to want to get out. But you always got to think about, you know, just kind of having that resiliency and just knowing that we're always going to have your back. And it's just been that way my whole career. It'll be, shoot, 13 years this August I've been in the National Guard. Uh, eight of it I've spent on some type of active duty status. And I wouldn't be here now if it wouldn't been for the Guard. I wouldn't have been like, hey, I can do all the things. Uh, you know, I'm you know, a mom of a five-year-old and a 19-month-old, and I just graduated my bachelor's with a full-time job. And if I hadn't had the discipline and the determination to do well, but also having the leaders behind me in the National Guard supporting me and motivating me and encouraging me to continue to progress, not only as a leader, but just as a person, I, I wouldn't be where I'm at today. And I just have come across so many people who had such an invested interest in me that I want to turn around and give back to the same to everybody else that is underneath me. Um, you know, all my soldiers and the people that I can impact, including my applicants and my recruits uh, who are in the National Guard, because it really starts with that first person that you see, you know, signing that contract is like, even my recruiter, Sergeant Rhodes, I'm sure he's retired now, but he was just like, he didn't really have to recruit me, but he still was like, yeah, I got you. This is what you want. I'm going to give it to you. You know, this is, this is how we work in the national guard. Like he was the first person that was like, but Miss Sheree Criswell, you know, she was the one that took me to that recruiter, but she was in the national guard too. Cause she knew the value 
and she knew what I had been going through and she knew me in high school and I played rugby with her and all that stuff. And, you know, I kept falling flat on my face, even think, though I thought I knew it all, like as every teenager does. <laughs> of course, you know? of course. Well, even into adulthood, let's be honest. Yeah. You know, and I still thank her all the time, all the time. You know, I actually just did last night because when I, you know, came back from training that first time and I got that job as a federal technician, guess whose house I was staying at till I got my apartment. It was hers, you know, and she had, you know, no obligation to do that. Even if we were friends, like, you know, she opened up her home to me and just made sure that I was taken care of. And, you know, even her as like a specialist at the time, she was a leader to me. Um, And that's just how, just how the national guard is, is, you know, they're really, we just, take care of our soldiers. We're our own culture. We are our own family. And, you know, it's most people when they enlist, you know, they enlist for their six year contract. They're with the same unit, their entire contract. So they see the same people every month. They deploy with the same people. Um, you know, you become a family. I'm like, heck, sometimes you don't even have friends that last six years and you have all these people on the guard that you definitely are going to know for six years. And it's just, it's really, it's really an amazing organization. The South Carolina national guard is actually, I guess if you want to count South Dakota will be the fourth state that I've been with. And it's been the same for all state. Cause we have individual. So yeah, like the Oregon national guard, Washington national guard, right They're They're kind of like their own organizations under the umbrella of the national guard bureau, but they operate differently. Like, cause obviously when you swear in, let's say I swore into the Oregon National Guard, I, you know, swear to obey whatever the governor wants me to do and the president. So if I switch states, I have to redo my oath for that state. So I've done it for technically three states, but I've worked for four in the capacity that I work with the South Dakota National Guard in Afghanistan. So, Well, so many people have really... Be, you know, heard more about the National Guard because the National Guard had been deployed during some of the uh, riots that we've had around the country. So the National Guard has gotten a little more publicity. So I'm just curious if someone's trying to determine, do they go into the Army or should they go into the National Guard? You know, what's the difference? I mean, why do you choose one versus the other? Or when you're in the National Guard, are you automatically technically part of the Army? I mean, I just maybe the nuance is there. You could kind of clear that up. So when you join the Nat, or I should say the Army National Guard, you are part of the Army. We're underneath the Army. So we go to Army basic training and we go to Army, you know, advanced individual training. And then when we do any type of like support missions overseas, we're pretty much under command of an active duty Army unit. Like, for example, my combat patch is the 101st Airborne patch, but that wasn't the unit I deployed with. I deployed with the South Dakota National Guard, but that's who had operational command of the theater at the time was 101st. Therefore, I wear 101st patch. So we do have, you know, the same job, you know, description, but the biggest difference between, let's say, active duty army or the army reserves versus the army national guard is the army national guard is we're also a state entity. So what that means is the governor can activate us for state missions. And that's what a lot of what you've been seeing across the nation between the protests and COVID-19 is that we've been activated by our governor to support our own states when there is public unrest or there are, you know, a pandemic going on. Or uh, one of the bigger ones that we actually end up being activated for every year are going to be natural disasters, hurricane, 
uh, tornado. You know, we just recently in South Carolina had a tornado hit Seneca and we had our, I believe it was our air defense um, went over there to help do the cleanup. And so we're constantly, we're, our motto is always ready, always there. So that means that we're always ready to deploy at any minute, any minute within our state to support in the event that they need us. And so that, you know, we do get publicity, obviously, when there's more of a, you know, I guess, political unrest going on in the country, but we are activated all the time here within the state, depending on what the state's need is. And it's going to be obviously dependent, you know, per state what's going on. And then sometimes we're actually activated and mobilized to other states when they need additional support, especially for the natural disasters. Maybe they need our aviation to help do with, you know, search and rescue, and they need more aviation battalions activated from other states to do that. We also support that in-house here in the United States. Now, how we are aligned with active duty and the Army Reserves is that we are federally activated, meaning the the Department of Defense, the president can order the National Guard to be activated to go to certain other states to, you know, deal with public unrest or because we need to do a, you know, a contingency mission overseas that requires additional personnel from those states. So that's kind of where we have that federal mission um, with the active duty army, what allows us to go to on combat missions or even training missions in Europe or wherever the need is for us at that time. What is the the perfect recruit? So obviously now you're a recruiter and here on Career Daily, you know, people are looking for career advice. They also look for just general advice, which you've just kind of given a lot just from your own personal experiences. But if someone is, they're finishing high school or they're trying to decide maybe college isn't for them. I mean, how do they decide if this is the right path for them? The biggest thing that always is going to be interest to me is the desire to serve in the first place. You can have anybody come in the office and get as much information as they want, but if they don't really have a desire to be there for their community and country, it may not be the right choice for them. But that's where a recruiter comes in to kind of dig that out of them to find out if this is the right path for them. When you're talking about the National Guard, with the exception of people like myself or more full-time support staff, the, the general idea of the National Guard is it's part-time. So that means that someone's going to be working one week in a month and they do about two, three weeks training a year with their units. And then, you know, the possibility of getting on state active duty orders or federal orders, depending on whatever the mission set is. So when I'm looking or searching for applicants, my biggest thing is like, first, you want to help your community because that's what we're here for, right? We're here to be deployed at a moment's notice to assist our neighbors in the event that there's a natural disaster, public unrest, or any other situation that's going on, like the pandemic that's happening right now with us, you know, needing pop-up tents for testing centers and all that is, are you ready to tell your workplace or your school, Hey, I'm on 30 day orders. I need to leave, um, you know, for, to do this mission. And when I'm looking for even an applicant, you know, one, are they between the ages of 17 and 35? Do they have at least a uh, GED and can they pass an aptitude test, which, you know, is what we call the armed services vocational uh, battery. It's basically assesses your current knowledge, education knowledge to make sure that if we send you to a military school, you can pass a school with not 
having a whole lot of issues with the curriculum. So um, it is a cognitive test. It is a cognitive test. So it pretty much is similar to a GED test when it comes to like word comprehension, uh, paragraph comprehension, arithmetic reasoning, and that stuff. I would say on average, a junior in high school, which is when someone can enlist at 17, is usually that education level is enough to pass the test. Uh, obviously, it's going to have like a varying scale of all the way up to 99, which a lot of people with advanced math skills do really well on the test, um, typically get at that point. But anyways, <laughs> I digress on that. You know, just assessing that knowledge base, make sure they un you know, understand the basics for the job and that ASVAB will determine what jobs they're eligible for. So if you get like a low to medium score, you're not going to be eligible for every job that the Army has. So that way we can at least, you know, that's another point is, hey, do you want to enlist as a cook? You know, some people don't want that. And you got to make sure that that's the right choice for them. But the biggest thing that I always tell applicants, sometimes it doesn't really matter the exact job that you do. It's that you're serving your community. And so that, you know, because when you get deployed in state, let's say that it is for a protest and you have to go support law enforcement. They don't care if you're a cook. They just want to make sure that you can stand there and, you know, be in support of your brothers and sisters in arms and the law enforcement around you to complete that mission because you're not sitting there cooking for people, obviously. Um, that's not the point of that mission. And same thing with like search and rescue or any type of natural disaster relief. You're not necessarily there to go do your exact job. You're there to support the community. Now, if you were to deploy overseas, then yes, you're going to do your job. That's the whole point of that. Like me as a journalist, if I was on state active duty orders, absolutely I'm there to take video and pictures and get, you know, sound bites and interviews and all that because that's a need for the public affairs aspect of it. But most people, it's not going to always be like that. So I think that's my biggest thing too is like you're, you're enlisting to do a specific job, but at the same time you're also enlisting to support your community. So if that's something that you want to do and have as a part-time thing and you know being in that type of organization then we're the right ones for you now if it's something where it's kind of like they just really want to serve they would like a full-time paycheck um they really want you know they always thought that they would do 20 years in the military or they have some like long-term like long family history of military service and stuff it might active duty might benefit them or it really if they have no desire to go to college and they're young, like 17, 18, and they don't have a job, I was like, maybe the National Guard isn't really meant for you because we really want to push our soldiers to use their education benefits. Because a lot of these states give 100% tuition waiver if you're in the National Guard. So, I mean, like, why would you join the National Guard a part-time basis if you don't have a job and don't want to go to college? You know, that's kind of like you kind of have to figure out if this is the right choice for them and making sure that these young adults are making the right decision because it's not about the number for us. Sure, we have a mission and we need to you know, keep our end strength at a certain amount in the National Guard. So it is important to put people in boots and get them trained so that they can be here in the case of these emergencies. We gotta make sure we're doing right by that young adult at the same time. So I, you know, those are questions that we have during the interview process. Um, during to make sure that that one, they're qualified and two, that they truly want to do this and be there for, you know, their neighbors, essentially. 
Well, you certainly seem to be the, the perfect spokesperson for the National Guard because they were this great safety net for you. They provided you the structure and the leadership, the skills and the traits that they really look to instill in people, the, the mindset, the attitude, the resiliency. You kind of came with that. So it seems like that was just the perfect fit for you. So, uh, you know, it kind of enhanced those skills that you currently had. And if someone's lacking some of those skills, it sounds like that would be uh, first and foremost, what they are taught, what they're, you know, uh, expected to emulate, right, right? To kind of fit in with the others. So this is, look, I, this has just been a, a great overview. I know so many of us were not really clear on the national guard and it, it sounds like you're protected as well when you want to go back to work. I know that's, it sounds like we were kind of wrapping up, but that was like a final question I had it. You're protected, aren't you? Like if you, you tell your employer you need 30 days off, they have to give you your job back or? Oh, absolutely. It's actually yeah. a federal act. And I wish I knew the exact name of it right now, but. I, I thought it was, I've never really had to look into that, but right. although yeah. like Georgia is a, a right to work state, you know, mm -hmm. you can be fired or you can quit, you know, anytime you want, but, but you're protected. Oh, absolutely. Uh, if, you're, if you're called up. Yeah. I thought you were. Yes. And I think that's, I mean, one, you need to have beyond orders. Um, to be able to provide that to your employer and your employer obviously needs to be aware that you're in the National Guard because you can get called up at a moment's notice. Uh, I recently had a soldier ask me questions because she had to work a shift, but she was told to go on um, to be at her armory at 06 the next morning for um, protest orders on for riot duty. And she was like, Hey, but I have this shift. I'm like, well, technically you're not on orders until midnight. So you need to work that out with your employer because you're not protected until you're on orders. So, you know, that's something that every soldier is educated on. Obviously if they have additional questions, they need to ask their leadership. But if a, an employer chooses to let go of a soldier due to the fact that because they're on orders and missing work because of orders, we have an entire organization called the EGSR that will go after them and sue them on behalf of the soldier um, for damages and stuff because it's illegal. It, it really is. It's illegal to let go of something due to military commitment, especially knowing that up front that your employee works for a military organization because we yeah. have drill schedules that we have to give. Hey, I can't work this weekend because, you know, I have drill. And we provide that drill schedule a year out, including their annual training dates. So every employer will know that, but they also know that you never know when things are going to go sideways. <laughs> like you can't predict when a tornado is going to touch down, right? And they do. So, and they do. Yeah. So, you know, that's another thing is like, that's what we're here for on that part-time basis and employers need to be aware of that. And I think that it's becoming a lot more common knowledge in the last 20 years. Uh, you know, that that's what the national guard is for. And it, it a lot more visible. And I, you know, we can probably thank the internet for that, honestly, um, just that visibility and the, those stories and, you know, being able to show those photos and videos online and being able to utilize the social media platform to make people aware what the National Guard actually does. Because, you know, it's it's sometimes it's not as, you know, widely known as the regular U.S. Army who's always deploying, you know, they just kind of lump us in there because we all wear the same uniform, but we are a different organization in our mission set and what we do.
Right. I mean, the the state obviously needs its own militia, and that's essentially yeah. what that is. So, well, I think what we're going to do, I'm going to put a link uh, to your LinkedIn profile and our private Facebook group if other people have more questions. I also want you to send us a link to uh, your your National Guard, to your unit, how people can go find out more, how they can link or connect with you if they have questions, if they want to join or learn more. I think uh, you'd be the perfect person to to reach out to for that. Yeah, absolutely. Brittany, this has been great. Um, any any final thoughts here before we before we go? Most people go through hard times in their life, and there's always going to be somebody there to support you. And I think that people just need to kind of look a little bit more outwardly to find out who those people are. Because if I didn't have all the people growing up that you know let me freaking live on their couch. <laughs> so you, you, <laughs> you need to put that on your resume, professional couch surfer. <laughs> couch surfer, right. You know, all the way up until where I'm at now, um, you know, there's always going to be someone out there that, that will help you and support you and that no matter what dark times people go through that, you know, there are so many programs out there and that not even just, you know, the National Guard or anything, but there are programs out there for homeless teens and, you know, domestic violence, um, you know, shelters and stuff like that. And just please, you know, just reach out and talk to somebody because if we don't talk about what's happening to us, no one's going to be there to help us because they don't know. And that we need to be more vocal about how to assist others with, you know, mental health issues and making sure that they have the proper resources and stuff so that they can, you know, better their lives and help the people around them understand them better. Um, again, and, 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 you know, adults have to be paying attention to the to the teenagers that are in their life. You can't just ignore the signs, right? You have to be open to to realize, look, some of these things are going on. You can't just turn a blind eye to it. Right, exactly. And, you know, um, my story is my story. Obviously, not everyone's going to have something similar to me, but I also want people to know that you can join the National Guard without having my type of story. We have a lot of people <laughs> from all different backgrounds. Uh, you know, you know, well-to-do off families and all that and stuff. It's just really, I just enjoy every single soldier and, you know, applicant and, and recruit that has been in my office that I've been able to sit down and talk with about the National Guard and impact them and help change their lives and set them up for success. Because why go to college and rack up $100,000 of debt when you can go for free? Well, you've, you're just such a bright spirit and light. You're just brutally honest. I think that's what everyone is going to hopefully take away from this. And uh, Brittany, thank you so much. Very inspirational. Yeah, thanks, Tony, for having me. Don't forget, head over to LinkedIn and follow me and then go to Facebook and join the exclusive Career Daily Facebook group. That's where I'll have links to the show notes and all the people and companies that we've discussed today.